Welcome to this New Mexico in Focus podcast edition of the show. It is Monday, July 19th, 2021, and I'm Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico in Focus. We hope you have uh, had a chance to listen to some of our recent episodes of the podcast, great conversations with our various line opinion panelists, which of course change out each and every week covering all kinds of topics, most recently everything from Virgin Galactic's historic launch at Spaceport America to the uh, gubernatorial race for next year that is already heating up. And so uh, subscribe if you don't already and leave us a review. Uh, But this week we've got, uh, or in this episode, got a ton of other great content for you as well. We're going to kick things off with information about returning to normal, the phrase we keep hearing everywhere we turn. We've been following closely uh, UNM's plans for return to campus this fall because they've been very public in their efforts uh, to bring folks back in person. That is their primary goal. And they even had a survey of students, staff, and faculty about the possibility of a vaccine mandate uh, for folks coming back to campus this fall. And we recently learned that they would not have a mandate. They will have a mandate to people uh, to continue to wear masks if they are not vaccinated. But their approach is to uh, incentivize folks getting the vaccine. And they announced uh, late last week that they would be crediting some money on students' bursar accounts if they can prove vaccination. And they would be holding a lottery of sorts similar to what the state did. Uh, for staff and faculty to win prizes if they also prove their vaccination status. So we wanted to find out more about all of that plan with the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for UNM, that is Cinnamon Blair. Also, uh, UNM Professor Gabe Sanchez, who does a lot of work in research and polling, and he was part, as well as the University of a Nationwide Poll, on what it is that is keeping some people still from getting vaccinated or fully vaccinated. And it is a fascinating uh, study and a fascinating insights from Gabe Sanchez, especially when you look at some of our minority communities here in New Mexico and across the U.S. uh, and some common threads there around uh, a sordid history with some of the pharmaceutical companies behind the vaccinations to uh, worries about specific health indicators and, uh, again, a long and storied history with the healthcare industry and the disparities there for people of color. Also, just the realities of the fact that many people have had to miss some work, especially with the second round of vaccinations, if they were getting the Pfizer or Moderna version. And as people trying to get back into the workforce, uh, they do not want to be concerned about missing time and and maybe losing that job. And so uh, just really fascinating study here and one that researchers hope universities like UNM can use to help develop plans to keep people back on campus in person and safely. So here is host Gene Grant with that conversation. We're going to be talking about returning to campus at UNM here. Coming up real quick, as you may know, there was a survey being done by the university to get feelings about returning to campus. A lot of things changed since the beginning of that survey to where we are now. 
We've had some guidance from both the CDC and the WHO that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But then also, we're very pleased to have Gabe Sanchez, uh, someone who has not been at our table here in the studio for a couple of years, including uh, the pandemic, <laughs> and Sinvin Blair, who's the public information officer for uh, UNM as well, to talk about this situation. So Sinvin, let me start with you. Um, let's kind of remind folks what the goal was of the survey. We'll get into results in, in a second, but what did you guys want to glean? What did you want to find out by reaching out to the public like this? Uh, great, thanks, Jean, and good afternoon to everybody. Um, the survey was part of a, a comprehensive outreach to see uh, whether mandating a vaccine would be something the university would be interested in for the fall. And so the survey was to gauge how people felt about mandating a vaccine and also what issues surrounding that were of most import. So was it about accommodations? Was it about freedom of choice? Those types of things. So what we wanted to do is engage our um, constituencies. And I think we were the only university in the state to do that. So we really wanted to get that feedback to help inform any decisions made now and in the future, and also any types of accommodations or issues that we could mitigate in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Is there, was there any commonality in the, in the responses? Did you, did you come away with something that said, wow, the community is really focused on X? right now. And I realized it was a moving target when you started <laughs> the survey. The, the situation was a lot different than it was even just a couple of weeks ago. So I'm, I'm curious if any one particular thread popped out to you guys. Um, there, there were several. I mean, people were concerned about how this could be enforced. They, want, they were concerned about accommodations that would be made for people who um, have immune compromisation or mm -hmm. had other types of uh, religious or other, other um, accommodations that they would need, how we would react to supporting telecommuting, uh, those types of things. So those were probably the most common um, themes that came up from both people who were in favor of um, or opposed to it and even neutral. Gotcha. Was the impact of the CDC decision a few days, well, a couple of weeks ago now that their position was masks would not have to be worn for folks that were vaccinated in school settings. Was that, was that an, an important milestone in your decision-making? Were you waiting for some guidance out of the CDC for a spell of time? Um, I don't know that it was, the mask wearing was um, critical. Right now we're following um, any of the state guidance and we are referring to CDC, but if, you know, mask wearing um, for those who aren't vaccinated is also part of our policy on campus. Mm -hmm. And, and right now, what we want to do is get everybody vaccinated. Um, this is a really big push. The president sent out a message on Monday and set this aspirational goal for 100% vaccination. Our health sciences center had, did, had done a 10 to 100 challenge. They're at 93% vaccinated right now. Um, but to keep us safe and also to just really create this culture of efficacy in protecting ourselves and the pack and our community as we move forward from COVID, from flu, not coming to work sick, really being mindful of our health and the health of our community and the impact that it has. That's the long-term goal. The short-term goal is to get people to be vaccinated. We'll be offering um, some incentive drives. We'll be promoting this heavily um, in the upcoming weeks before our students return to campus. That is a perfect lead-in to Gabe Sanchez from the UNM Center for Social Policy. And the study you folks have taken on to find out why, in fact, Gabe, folks are not willing to get vaccinated, sometimes after the first vaccination, sometimes zero. Um, let's talk about the study. This is very interesting. I didn't realize how, how large it was. Tell us about the goal, what you wanted to get across with this study. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Gene. Great to see mm -hmm. you. 
Um, I think the overall study was massive, over 20,000 respondents across the country. Um, and we had a New Mexico oversample. Uh, I think 2,050 some odd New Mexicans participated in our study. And it was really focused exactly as you noted, identifying, you know, at that point, how many folks have been vaccinated? What are some of the obstacles or barriers to vaccination, particularly for diverse communities? And what messages could be paired with messengers to try to increase uptake? And fortunately, we, we had a, a sample uh, specific to New Mexico of young adults that included college students. So hopefully we're, we're thinking our data could help inform the efforts of UNM and other higher ed institutions in the state. That's an interesting point there. And I want to dovetail off Cinnamon's point that the university is going to start some incentive programs and things like that. Was there any discovery, again, kind of a similar question a couple of minutes ago, was there any one solid thread of thought that you folks uncovered in this study that said, this is why folks are, are, not, are refusing to get vaccinated? Well, I'll talk specifically about the young adults and that for us and, and our survey mm -hmm. is 18 to 29 year olds. And it was a mixture of both just lack of basic information. Young adults in our survey sample were much more likely than the older segments to identify that they really didn't know all the details on how to go about getting vaccinated. Right. And unfortunately, a high percentage of those folks indicated that one of the barriers for them was cost and that they might be unemployed. Um, and we know here in New Mexico, that doesn't matter. Right? So it's an indicator to us that just basic information that it's free and open to everybody could really help, particularly those young adults and college students to get vaccinated. Sure. And one of the, the best outcomes from our survey is we tested a number of different incentives and posed those at very low amounts, 25 bucks all the way to $500. And fortunately, I think for the university, young adults and college students were more likely than the older segments of the population to say yes, even a small incentive as small as $25 to hundred bucks significantly increases their likelihood of getting vaccinated. So I think that's a, an insight that hopefully bodes well for our ability to put some of those incentives in front of college student population. Sure, right. by any chance, did that study also study, did you also ask rather in the study whether larger amounts like, you know, we have like 250K up for, up for grabs, like a lot of states out there, are those kind of amounts motivating for younger people? We didn't actually see a huge jump going from let's say a hundred dollar incentive up to 500 bucks. Uh, I think, and that tracks pretty well with what I'm seeing in terms of the national research looking at incentives. Yeah. You don't get a major increase after a certain dollar amount. Um, we didn't unfortunately get to test the lottery uh, that the state is, is putting in play. I think we were already in the field when that became a reality here in New Mexico. So that's the only caveat that we weren't able to test, but good news is even small incentives drive behavior, particularly for young adults. That's fascinating. That's actually uh, quite interesting. Let's peel back to something you mentioned earlier that is very important. That is how these things are seen inside various disparate communities. Uh, let's take the African-American community first. And there was a focus there in the study, but very interesting to kind of see this as well, that, you know, it's very well documented the hesitancy in the African-American community for these things. What, what, was your, what was your research telling you in that regard? Yeah, I think it's important to note that, that we partnered with the lead on this national project, the African-American Research Collaborative. So they had a laser focus, particularly on the African-American community. And what we were able to find is, right, it's a, again, a host of, of both hesitancy barriers that includes just basic information about it being free and you don't have to have health insurance, right? right? So it's some of that. But what really stood out for us when we think about the black population was the Johnson & Johnson, a particular brand of vaccination. 
Um, and our colleagues at the AARC pointed out early on that part of this is ongoing challenges with Johnson & Johnson as it relates to talcum powder and other things that disproportionately impact the African-American community. So there was already a, a lack of trust, if you will, among that particular brand. And that obviously is this filtering over into think, thinking about the vaccines. And another piece of the puzzle is we asked about discrimination experiences that all survey respondents across racial groups have had, particularly with the medical industry or the healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. And both the African-American and Native American community were much more likely than other racial and ethnic groups to say that they've experienced unfair treatment within the healthcare system. And that definitely has implications for just trust in the vaccine. And we're mm -hmm. finding that as we run statistical modeling that people who say, yes, I have experienced discrimination are less likely to indicate that they're going to get the vaccine. So it's again, unfortunately discrimination, and we know this is structural, right? Not just here in New Mexico, but nationally directly impacts how people trust what they're hearing about the vaccines. That is absolutely fascinating. And at a gut level, it makes a lot of sense. That's interesting what you turned up there. Let me turn to the Native American community you mentioned a second ago. Um, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. There's been good vaccination rates, certainly on the Navajo Nation and other uh, Native American places around the state and around the region. However, there is hesitancy, of course, to get vaccinated inside that group as well. Do, do some of the same things you just mentioned apply to Native American population as well on that hesitancy part? Yeah, absolutely. Some upside is Native Americans here in New Mexico have been among the leaders in terms of early vaccination. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a direct credit to everything our tribes and pueblos have been doing uh, to try to make vaccinations as readily available to the community as possible. So that's the upside. The downside is once you look at folks who have not been vaccinated yet, Native Americans have some of the highest levels of hesitancy. Mm. And again, lack of, lack of trust uh, from both the federal government, state government, healthcare industry is a major factor for Native Americans and for good reason. But another interesting trend that I was looking at actually early this morning within our data is that for Native Americans, particularly those who have underlying conditions or who are obese or perceived that they are, there's a large hesitancy to get the vaccination because they're hearing, and this was widespread from national health experts, that folks who do have things like diabetes or who have been told that they're obese are gonna have a greater likelihood of having complications if there are any uh, from the vaccine. So some of this is, again, the underlying inequalities that face a lot of our communities as it relates to healthcare and access to healthcare are definitely feeding into some, let's be honest, some good reservations from, from getting the vaccine because if they're hearing that this might pose particular problems because of their underlying conditions, that's gonna you know, manifest itself, unfortunately, into greater hesitancy rates. Good points there, wow. Uh, Cinnamon, Cinnamon Blair, I, I, you know, all of this speaks to what you know already, uh, which is UNM hosts a very diverse population. It's, it's, like, it's like a major city in New Mexico when you guys are up and running uh, come fall to spring. You know, managing what you just heard from Gabe and how folks are perceiving this, does that pose an extra challenge to get to those goals you're looking to get to by, by the time campus opens? Um, it, it poses a similar challenge. And, and I, I will say that our um, centers for uh, the African-American students, Native American students, and um, Hispanic students, they have been on this since day one. And okay. we're trying to get that peer-to-peer -peer, um, educational and, and, ask, and inspirational um, message amongst those groups. We're also really fortunate in addition as, you know, as an R1 institution, in addition to the great research done by people like um, Professor Sanchez, 
we have the only academic medical center in the state and we rely heavily on the medical expertise. And that also includes reaching out to so many of our communities. The, the UNM Health Sciences Center is a leader in reaching diverse populations. And so that messaging from medical experts within those communities is really critical because that trust has been built up over years. It's not like they're just going in right now and saying, trust us. So that's also something that we've leveraged is the, the physicians within those communities that have established trust and relationships that they work within um, the communities to uh, widen that message. Mm -hmm. What's the plan, Cinnamon, for those? I mean, it, when I say diverse, everyone's got their own opinion on these things as well, as well as racial diversity. Of a student, an older student maybe, who just doesn't want to get vaccinated, has no plans on getting vaccinated, but wants to continue their education, how do you deal with someone like that? Well, I mean, there are, there are, well, there's different, there's the students and then there's also the faculty and the staff. And so for, for faculty and staff or employees of UNM, we're asking people to work with their supervisors. If they need an accommodation, they can work through our, our compliance and, and office of equal opportunity. You know, for students, we're asking them to work with the provost's office, with their advisors to see how they can best continue their education. I mean, mm -hmm. we are offering resources. We want, we don't want anybody to uh, lose what they've already completed and accomplished as a student or are looking to um, accomplish. So definitely work with, um, with us, with academic advisors, with the provost's office, with um, uh, the Accessibility Resource Center, depending on what the accommodation is. Okay. Are, are Zoom capabilities still staying in place? I'm assuming they are, but to accommodate folks like this? Um, for I don't know about the academic side in terms of how much Zoom um, capability will be allowed. We are going back to in-person classes. Right. So um, I would say largely in-person experience is what we're offering for the fall. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Gabe, I want to finish up with something. I, I didn't mean to leave out the Hispanic population here, certainly. Uh, that's a, a mistake on my part. Let's touch on that for a quick sec, Gabe. You know, again, I, similar responses, but I'm really, I'm really interested in this one dose and out kind of a thing. If you can touch on that as well. That's a fascinating pie chart in, in your study, by the way, all the different reasons. But the Hispanic communities particularly, any hesitation there that's particular to this population? Yeah, one of the things that's not unique to Hispanics, but sticks out in the data, and it's consistent with what I've been hearing from nonprofits on the ground, is that there's a significant concern, particularly in this economic climate, where a lot of folks have lost jobs or just starting back to finding a job. There's a lot of concern that if I get the vaccine, I'm hearing from folks, I might be out of work for as much as a week, right? Oh, because wow. of side effects associated with the vaccine. And that's particularly high among our Hispanic population. And it's another one that's logical. Right. If I'm just getting back on my feet, I'm starting to generate, you know, some some revenue with the new job. And I'm concerned that if I have to ask for time off, am I going to be able to keep that job? So, again, I think a lot of what we found in the survey actually is pretty rational in the context of, of some of the decisions that folks are having to make um, when they think about, you know, particularly getting the second dose. And so that leads you to possibly the logical conclusion that maybe we should emphasize the one dose option. Right. It requires less follow-up time. You don't have to wait around for two weeks to be able to get a follow-up appointment, especially when folks are hearing it's the second dose that generates the most sickness, if you will, as a side effect. But then again, there's the hesitancy associated with the brand of who's offering right a one-dose option. So it's a complicated puzzle. We always hope that the data that we collect 
helps the powers that be to inform their strategies. And I will say, I'll tip my hat to the State Department of Health. They have leaned on us pretty heavily uh, throughout this process. And I have mm -hmm. seen them take action on just about everything I've suggested to them. And I think it's, again, a collective effort that all of us are trying to pitch in and do what we can to try to get vaccination uptake here in the state of size we can. Mm -hmm. Any, Gabe, any sense, I want to wrap up with you guys. I know you got a lot to do, but uh, today on a Wednesday, any sense of how, if there was the potential for a booster shot, how the need for it come this fall or maybe in the winter, how do you think that's going to go down? You know, when you look to the filter of the study you've done so far and the hesitancy for just this first go around, are, are you concerned about if we have to go to a scheme for a booster shot that we may not get a take rate that that would be effective? Well, we fortunately actually asked that question in the survey. Um, oh. We asked most directly, you know, if, if we do have to get an annual booster, um, would you be willing to do that? And we also asked, would you be willing to take it if it was a combination with the flu shot? Um, and the long story short of it is essentially the same folks who lack vaccination hesitancy and are willing to get the first dose, they're the same people who are saying, we're going to do the follow-up and we'd be willing to do the booster. So the same set of hesitancy factors and the same subgroups of the population, which includes young adults, right, that are hesitant to get the first shot, they're going to be the same folks we're going to have to work on uh, to increase their uptake if we're looking at an annual booster. Mm, interesting. You guys have your work cut out for you, Cinnamon Blair. I really appreciate your time and getting this together. One of the things we really pride ourselves here at New Mexico and focus on is going in depth on issues of the day. And we hope that interview with Cinnamon Blair of UNM, as well as Professor Gabe Sanchez and his research, helped to give you some good information on the hesitancy around vaccinations as we see the Delta variant floating around. Uh, cases are climbing a little bit here in New Mexico. There's still a lot of uncertainty long term here. What we do know is that many of the cases that are, are being diagnosed are of the unvaccinated uh, community. And so that is why it is so important. And speaking of in-depth, we have talked a lot in the last year about the effects of COVID-19 on our students, uh, starting as young as kindergarten all the way through college. We know that it's been a hardship. We've talked a lot about the broadband and the digital divide, and nowhere has that felt more than on the Navajo Nation, which of course was one of the hardest hit communities early in the pandemic. And Searchlight New Mexico, an online news publication, has done incredible reporting on this front as part of their Hitting Home project. And one of the reporters working on that is Sunny Klasha Chilogy. And she sat down with senior producer Matt Grubbs recently to talk about her latest report, which I believe is the last in the Hitting Home project that profiles several people, including a young man who traveled each and every day great distances up on hills in his truck to try to get Wi-Fi connectivity so that he could do his schoolwork. And not only the frustrations for him, but his family as they tried to make this work. And of course, as you will hear Sonny talk about, it all starts from a place of all of us hearing and reporting on the countless number of students who have just kind of disappeared out of the education system during COVID-19 something that we are all going to be dealing with for years to come here in New Mexico. So we wanted to get a little more of the backstory and her insights from doing this reporting over the last year. It is a fantastic listen, 
and we'll kick to it right now. Here is senior producer Matt Grubbs. Sunny Klotschus Chiligi, thank you so much for joining us and uh, for talking about your work at Searchlight. Um, this was a pretty amazing piece. Um, talk to me about what you were after when, when you set out to write it. I think that, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily something I would call a new story. I know that it's been touched upon by many outlets and, and but really that I think it's just the fact that it was just that touched upon. Um, you know, we had learned throughout the year, the pandemic year that students were facing a lot of struggles, including internet access, um, internet connectivity, cellular collectivity, uh, lack of technology, all of those kinds of things. And so, but I wanted to give people a glimpse of, you know, what exactly does that look like for someone on the Navajo Nation um, with very little or none internet access? And then, uh, but also the other challenges of being a K through 12 student on the reservation during the time of the pandemic. Of course. And um, the student you keyed in on um, to start the story, Evan Allen, how did you come across Evan's story and what did you do to sort of find out what his educational experiences were like through the past year? Um, I think a, a big part of it started with a lot of the talk that was happening about unaccounted for um, kids or students in New Mexico. There was a lot of that um, talk happening within local within local media outlets, but also just you know, obviously among schools, especially since that was a very, a very difficult part for, for people during the pandemic was how to handle schools and, and get students the education they, they need and deserve. And so um, I was really just looking for uh, unaccounted for students on the reservation. I wanted to know what that looked like and more importantly, what those unaccounted for students were doing. Um, where were they and what were they doing? And to kind of occupy their time if they were either not in school anymore, or they just kind of dropped off, why they dropped off. Um, so I think that that's really been the foundation for the interest in the story. And um, for Evan, I think that it, it, it worked out in the sense that, um, you know, I'm from the Tisnos Plus community as well, which you will learn a little bit about in, in the story. And um, it just so happened that he went to school in New Mexico lived in Tisnas Plus in Arizona at the time, which actually was really nice because it presented another issue that people often forget about, that it's a very normal thing for students to go to school in another state and live in another state um, at, at that level. And so I think that was kind of surprising for some people, but, um, but yes, I, I just, um, I, it was just a blessing to be able to find him because it's, you know, these students are really hard to find and to be able to have him share his story. I mean, I often say that he's very brave because it does take a lot to allow yourself to open up and, and share your experiences. Especially at that age, he talked about being um, physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. Um, I think you have that great quote from him in the story. And it took a toll on his family, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his mother it, it was interesting because, you know, kids are kids are kids and a lot of time they don't um, share their feelings, especially at that age, you know, they're going through things, they're growing up and they definitely don't want to share a whole lot with uh, parental figures. But, you know, he was kind of the same, like he wasn't he wasn't sharing the troubles that he was having with Internet connectivity. And so there was a, what's not in the story is his mom tells me about how she thought he was just going to the hill to, you know, 
kind of mess around. Like she didn't know that he was going because he was trying to get things done with school. And, and at one point, you know, she finally realized what he was trying to do. And even she felt guilty because she didn't, she wasn't aware of his circumstances um, because he hadn't shared a whole lot. And he just, she was under the impression since she didn't hear from him that, oh, it's fine, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it was, it definitely took a toll because, you know, I'd sat with her in her, in the kitchen a number of times talking about, you know, how did it make her feel to sit and watch him go through what he was doing, going through every day. And, you know, she talked about how it just was so frustrating and it felt so helpless because there was not a lot that she could do. She tried calling the school. She tried getting these resources. She dug deep to get him his own hotspot, you know, things like that. So it definitely took a toll um, on, on all of them. The amount of detail and the fact that you, you know, were up there more than once certainly comes through in the piece. The idea that um, this high school kid, uh, you know, had to drive to the top of the hill to get enough cell service to enable him to have a Wi-Fi or a, a hotspot, a cell, a cell hotspot. I mean, and then sit there for sometimes 10 hours um, to go through school. Sounds like band practice too, maybe. And then to do homework. That's just astounding to me. It is. I mean, and I think that I really don't think that we will know what it's really like unless we were to do it ourselves. I mean, it was sure it was one thing for him to kind of run through it with me and explain it to me and tell me, you know, what he was going through. But it's another to be that person in that position because, you know, every day wasn't the same because the weather changes, as was mentioned in the story, circumstances change. Um, you know, you might not, you might have technology troubles, you know, it just, you might have animals running around your vehicle. I mean, it's pure desert there, high desert. So um, there's a lot of things that could happen. And so it, it, it was more than just him going to school and doing the things that you would do in school. It was all the other things that you have to do to make sure that you stay in school, if that makes any sense. Um, and so it, it, there was just so many more factors. It wasn't just about, okay, I need to do my homework. I need to do my schoolwork. It was worrying about things that we often worry about as adults or that we kind of take for granted, the everyday accessibility things. I think one thing mentioned in the story is that, you know, his mother felt really heartsick about the fact that other students had a lot of conveniences. And that could be something as simple as, being in a house doing your homework. Um, that's a convenience that he did not necessarily have. And so, um, I mean, can you imagine playing your instrument in the back of a truck while it's snowing outside or it's raining or, you know, whatever it is that, that the case is. So um, yeah, it was just, it's every aspect of what he's gone through throughout the school year, working and doing homework from where he was at is just incredible. Nothing short of incredible. Sure. Sure. It's hard not to get, choked up thinking about everything that he went through. Um, one of the things that I really liked about the story was it, of course, wasn't just Evan. Um, you point out that uh, it's an underestimate likely, but um, more than 23,000 native students um, are without reliable internet um, or, or cellular hotspot access. Uh, I can't imagine what that does to the educational experience. What did you find out? Well, you know, it was really disheartening because I, I wanted to understand what that was like for students who perhaps just dropped out or, you know, that were unaccounted for. And that's honestly how this story started. It was, I think that 
not long ago, the state or local outlets were talking about these unaccounted for children or students. And I wanted to know what that looked like on the Navajo Nation. And the bigger question was, where, where are they and what are they doing? And so, um, you know, what I found was through Evan, which is quote, he's quoted in the story saying that he knew of classmates who just simply stopped coming into class. He knew of some that when the fall semester came, they just decided not to sign up. Um, he knew of some that just um, stay home and watch TV or, um, and then we have people who are on a, the administrative end uh, of, of the education systems who are well aware of these circumstances, are well aware that students just can't do it. I mean, I had one source tell me that parents were just so frustrated that they were also up in arms and sometimes would just say, okay, well, I'm just going to take my kid out because this is too much. I can't do this. So, um, so there's, uh, there's still not a definite of where exactly these students went and what they were doing. But I can tell you that from the other family mentioned in the story, the Marianos, um, they talked about how, which wasn't in the story, but how uh, when their, their kids weren't given the technology that they just had their kids do um, housework or work on projects until they got that. And so I kind of imagine that some, that's what some of those kids were doing who were at home. Um, but I'm pretty certain that a lot of them were not being very productive and were just kind of, you know, doing things that they would typically do on a weekend or something from school. And it strikes me that the difference between, um, say you're in a home that has reliable high-speed internet, you can learn quite effectively for 40 minutes. And I have no doubt that there are other students out there and other families who are also doing projects around the house and things like that, that you just kind of normally do during the day if you're at home. But the difference, if, if you don't have any access um, versus that high-speed access is, is monumental. Um, how does it fall into uh, the framework of the Yazzie Martinez decision, which I know sort of rides above so much of, of education in New Mexico. I mean, I think that, you know, going to school on the reservation is a very tough thing in itself, whether or not we have these technology issues or lack of broadband or, um, you know, things like that. It, the, 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 the circumstances are even deeper than that. I mean, in the story, it talks about lack of electricity. I mean, we're talking about how infrastructure also affects this or the lack thereof. And so I think that's a big part of the, the I guess that's a big part of what makes that unique and kind of what makes going to school on the reservation unique or being a student who lives on the reservation and goes to school off of it. I mean, I think I learned a lot of that just focusing on, um, in the story I mentioned, Central Consolidated School District. It's one of the few, I think perhaps, um, one of the few schools that operates very uniquely in the sense that it is not fully on the reservation. Some schools are on, some schools are off. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, guidance that they have to get, not just from the state, but also from the tribe, but also from the parents themselves. And so it can be really tricky at times. And I think that the Yazzie Martinez kind of, um, it gets things started into looking at what are some of these things that affects the overall education of, of Navajo students. But then when you look deeper, when you look deeper and a little bit beyond education at the deeper problems that exist, you see kind of world problems, if you will, um, nation problems within the Navajo Nation that we're obviously constantly hearing about through every story that comes out of the Navajo Nation more recently within the last year is infrastructure. And so I think that I think that Yazi Martinez is great in the sense that 
it presents some of these problems that have long been long overlooked. Did anyone you spoke with at the district level or the school level say, well, it's been rough, but but now that we have Yazi Martinez, things are better, or is it just not there yet? No, I think that it's going to be a lot of work. I mean, take, take for example, something that's a little bit of an aside, um, impact aid. Impact aid is something that a lot of people don't know about, but it's federal aid that a lot of these students, a lot of these schools get that have a need of population. Um, and for years, years and years, a lot of these schools, which are have a high native population, were missing out on some of this money that was being taken out by the state. And so um, a lot of them talk, spoke about that rather, because they, they all felt that it would have really made a difference had they had that money they had gotten from impact aid. So I honestly didn't have someone really talk to me about Yazi Martinez. Um, I brought that into the story on my own while looking for numbers. Um, but I think that that is where that case definitely helped was um, giving us a sense of how big is this problem that we're mentioning in this story. And that is, um, you know, helping us see what is happening in, with students on the reservation. Certainly. And if I have it right, Impact Aid, for folks who don't know, is a federal program that's designed to replace what districts um, would get in property tax income or, or funding. Um, because, for example, where there's a lot of federal land or tribal land, um, they're not getting taxes from that, but the state was actually counting it towards what they should have gotten already and, and all that's changing, but uh, I can't imagine what a difference it would have made if these districts would have had 10, 15, 20 years of that money being in their, in their oh. classrooms. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had uh, the Mr. Montoya, who's mentioned from the CC Central Consolidated School District um, Board President, mentioned to me, and he's been a lot, I'm very thankful to him for explaining to me what all of that was, because it can be very complicated. But, you know, he had mentioned, I asked him just flat out, do you think, how much of a difference do you think that would have made had you had that? Could it have really offset what you're talking about in terms of lack of funding? And he said, oh, absolutely. You know, we would have had just probably everything that we needed for every student that we had, um, you know, and so I think that that definitely shows the big impact that it could have made. Well, Sunny, it's a great read and we'll make sure to post a link to it, but thanks so much for all your time. Thank you for having me. And Sunny had a few extra minutes for us that we just didn't have time for in the show, but want to bring it to you here. Uh, she and Matt Grubbs talk a lot about the resiliency within Native communities. Uh, they have learned and have been and shown that resiliency in lots of different ways over lots of different years, but definitely true here with the COVID-19 situation and the, the schools. And so I want to dive in a little bit more on how that resiliency played out for uh, Navajo communities. Uh, and so here now is a little bit more of our conversation with Sunny Chachachilaji and Matt Grubbs. Sunny Klaschischilagi, thank you so much for joining us from Searchlight New Mexico. When we spoke on air, one of the things you mentioned toward the end of our interview was when you were reporting for the Hitting Home series, um, the resilience that of course you know growing up uh, on the Navajo Nation, um, but something that, as you said, is, is mentioned in a lot of stories. Um, it must be striking to now um, in July, of 2021, look back at what happened over the last year um, and then compare that to now. 
um, as the Navajo Nation tribal parks are opening up. Um, President Nez is, I believe, lifting the, the closure. Um, these cautious first steps forward, but ones that are so important. It must feel really unique to you to sort of look at those two parts of the world you grew up in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it feels like it's a whole nother time and it probably is. I mean, there, I just, this past weekend, I've learned of people reconnecting and, you know, doing things together and our family has yet to do some of those things, but, you know, knowing that families are taking cautious and they're, they're, you know, wearing their masks still and that we're taking caution as, as a, a community, as a whole, the Navajo nation, um, it's, it's wonderful, but it's it's also bittersweet because you have to move on. We have to move on without those that we've lost. And you know, I've had loss in my own family, um, in extended family, friends. I've just we've all known so much loss, and that's just not the Navajo Nation. But for us, I think it's it's a little more because we're a very very much of a social people, and um, we really like to extend our arms and we like to. We like to visit, we like to do things together. And it's gonna be very strange to do that and notice the people who are not here with us. And so I think that, well, I think we will continue to move forward in a very cautious and bittersweet way. I mean, I know that I am because I, I feel guilty sometimes enjoying myself. Maybe if I wanna go out to eat um, safely in the middle of the week, or you know, it feels um, a little bit guilty because there was a time where you know, people didn't, couldn't even do something like wash their hands, didn't have water to do that or, you know, whatever it is. And it's, you kind of carry some of that guilt with you. So I think that, um, but it's also very much demonstrative of our resiliency because though we lost so many people, we have so many people here with us still. And so I think that that definitely speaks to that is that we're able to move forward as a nation. We were able to do what was necessary as a community and, um, and staying safe and keeping each other safe. So um, I think that resiliency has always been there. I remember giving my first interview, I think it was with KOAB um, after my very first Hitting Home story came out. And I ended that interview about on a note of resilience that, you know, we're still here, we're still going to be here. And that rings true today. Certainly. For you personally, um, what are the steps that you're taking as you sort of try to reconnect with, with family and, and maybe extended family over the next weeks and months? You know, I think that it's, it's, it's hard because everyone has views and reasonings and different situations for maybe not getting vaccinated or how they feel comfortable, if they feel comfortable without masks if they wanna continue wearing them. I, I ring on the side of caution very much so. I think that I've quite honestly been deeply affected by what's happened, be, partly because of the work that I was doing covering COVID on the Navajo Nation, but also just because of the fear that I had myself. I mean, you know, to be honest, I think that's something that journalists don't talk about enough is, is how they're doing and how, you know, how things that their work, how their work has impacted them. And it's impacted me greatly. And so I still wear my mask. Um, you know, if I'm in a place where uh, even if there are tons of people not wearing masks, I still wear my mask out to my car. I still wear my mask, you know, things like that. And so, you know, I try to figure out where my parents have been, what they're doing and where they've gone and they still wear their masks. So uh, I think that it's, it's going to be a very slow process. I mean, the last time I was home, I got to see my sister and spend time with her. Um, but it's always this question of, 
are you vaccinated? You know, how are you feeling? Like it's going to be hard to get away from that. I think for sure. And I'm so cautious in that I still wipe things down. I mean, I know that there have been, um, reports about how it's not necessary, but it's just so engraved in me now that I, I just can't not. So. Yeah, I bet. Um, you brought up that point about journalists not speaking about, um, the impact that the stories that they have, um, or that they cover that the impact that it has on them, I'm sure it's much harder to compartmentalize when you're covering the place where you grew up, you know, and the place that is still home in so many ways to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that after it was, it was, I think most perhaps obvious after I, I, I wrote my last hitting home story before this one, which was on Navajo women, um, that really, that got me good. Um, it got me good because I had just lost an aunt, um, to, to the, to COVID and, and everything just kind of happened at the same time. And I, I didn't know that I was dealing with, with the effects of that, perhaps, um, some kind of mental instability. Um, and I was pushing myself to work so much and I hadn't taken time to really reflect on what those losses meant to me and how I was dealing with those losses. And for me, I'm a workhorse. So sometimes I just work and work and don't realize when I need to take a break or when something's prompting me to. And so I think that that was a moment when I, I made some self-reflection, um, and, I realized I'm not okay. You know, I'm not okay with losing these people who I have lost. And then I was dealing with more loss because of the work that I was doing, hearing people talk about who they've lost or um, hearing my mom tell me in a text or a call that we've lost somebody else in our community, in our small community of Tisnos Plus or wherever it is. And so it's just, it was really starting to weigh heavy on me. And I finally came out, I believe on, you know, Twitter, social media that, I'm going to take some time, you know, that I need some time to, I'd love to be, continue to be engaged about what's happening, but I also need my time. So I, I took some significant time away and perhaps that's why there's been such a gap since that last story in this one. Um, and, and I was okay with that. I had to learn to be okay with taking that time because, you know, it, the weight of the nation, the Navajo nation and the loss that we suffered it's not just that of the individuals, it's also, a, it's a communal loss. And so we've all lost, even if it's people that we might not have known, but are from the same community. And that's a lot of loss to take in. And so, um, so yeah, and you know, there was a point where it's, I, I've learned more and more about um, the steps that journalists should and, and need to take in terms of, you know, kind of identifying what we're going through in some of the things that we cover because they can be very heavy. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you took that time for yourself. It's a great story. Um, and again, we have links posted to it um, on our website and we'll make sure to, to link uh, over there. But Sunny, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, we are hard at work already this week for more content for you here on this podcast and on air on New Mexico PBS. And as always, we encourage you to keep up with the show throughout the week on all of our social media channels. You can do that uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, our website, newmexicoandfocus.org. And we always love to hear what you are seeing and hearing 
and worried about so that we can uh, go try to get some answers and information for you on those topics. So be sure to leave us a note about any of that. And we will be back with you again soon with all new content. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS.